News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are more reliant than ever before on satellites in this digital age, right? Everything from GPS to the internet. I mean, we need the information derived from having those satellites. And when you need something that much, well, we become vulnerable too, don't we? And that's exactly what many experts are saying about our level of risk right now, that we need much better cybersecurity to protect satellites from attack. Now, Dr. Gregory J. Falco is an assistant professor at Cornell University in Aerospace and Systems Engineering and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me today. Do we not protect our satellites enough? Not really. Most of these satellites have been out there for quite a while, and we don't really have, you know, the patches or the equivalent of McAfee or Norton antivirus to just pop on them. (laughs) Um, so we have a big problem. Okay, so that's funny that we don't have that. Like, okay, but did we not think about this? Like, or is cybersecurity, would you say, a relatively new concern? It's a relatively new concern relating to how we have a lot of space systems now going up into orbit. Um, previously, most of the systems that were up were military or intelligence satellites. And increasingly, these are commercial systems. Uh, and the commercial systems do things at low cost. And when you do something at low cost, you leave out the stuff that you don't think is important. And they've left out a lot of the security parts. Okay, so it's not the military, you know, those satellites that you're worried about. You're worried about these ones that are becoming more increasingly common. I wouldn't just say that. <laughs> satellites for the military are also vulnerable. And the most reason why is because they're increasingly reliant also on these commercial systems. Um, so we have very, very old legacy systems from the 1980s or 60s even um, that we are still relying on. Um, for base military control. And they were also relying increasingly on commercial satellite systems for military capabilities. So we have kind of a double-edged sword here. How pervasive has this become, Dr. Falco? I mean, do we underestimate just how reliant we've become on these satellites? Absolutely. And I think we, we get small glimpses of how reliant we are when things are out. Like, for example, there was a you know, television outage a, a couple of years ago from a very specific satellite network um, that you know, it was very targeted at a specific uh, Muslim community um, that was, you know, attacked because they didn't want them getting that messaging. Uh, similarly, communications for our phones are targeted reasonably consistently if it is actually the same bandwidth that is used for military communications. So we do see glimpses of problems. It's just that we've not had the 9-11 type of attack Um, that is required for people to take it very seriously. Okay, so you're saying it's not being addressed? Is there not some kind of realization happening that maybe we need to do something about this? There there is. It's mostly, though, by those in the weeds of this problem. So, for example, I I chair the International Technical Standard on Space Cybersecurity with the IEEE, and it's a community of over 200 people around the world, over 20 countries, who are experts that are coalescing around the idea that we need to design better satellite systems with security in mind. So there is, there are experts thinking about this, but it's not part of requirements right now. And as governments and militaries and commercial companies are building satellites, they're not looking at requirements and saying, thou shalt have security inside. Okay, so how vulnerable are we here? Like, what type of security do these satellites have? Uh, well, most of the ones that are, so satellites are composed of kind of three different or four different segments. You have the satellite space vehicle, which is the thing that's in orbit. Then you have the ground station, which controls the thing in the orbit. 
Um, and that's like a you know industrial control system, a computer or an antenna on the ground. Then you have something called the link segment, which is the communications, the actual physical waveforms that uh, go over the air to go to the satellite. Then you have the user segment, which is kind of like your phone or the end user app that is using the satellite. And so all of them have different parts uh, involved and different security requirements. And some parts of that ecosystem are more secure than others. But the biggest challenge is really the ground station right now because it is connected to the Internet uh, and it uses very old systems that just haven't had any updates or any security platforms built into them. So how challenging would this be to say, all right, we're going to secure these? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard problem um, because we have a lot of old stuff out there. However, we have a lot of opportunity because we are building exponentially more systems right now than ever before. And so if we don't start now, we will have this problem perpetually. We can technically think about saying, well, let's dis- disregard all these old satellites we have and let's just build new. And if we did that in 10 years, we'll be in good shape. We have this really unique opportunity and time window right now to build new secure systems. And we're hoping that that's what the industry wants to do. Okay, so that's assuming, though, that these new systems that are built will come with that cybersecurity built in. Now, is that happening? Is that the case? That's what we're aiming for with this new standard. Right now, there's no guidance that's out there for what can make a secure space system. And so as we develop our standard, we're hoping that uh, you know governments around the world will start saying, Look at the standard. This is how you build a good system. And if we're going to pay you to build a satellite for us, it has to have this stuff inside. You know, Dr. Falco is just a a regular person who's not smart like you are. Um, I I just find it a bit astounding that this kind of stuff wasn't thought of before because it takes smart people to put satellites in space and to build satellites. And I can't believe that they didn't think, geez, we should really make sure these are secure. For many years, the scientific community really is the only one who publicly spoke about satellite systems. Um, And when you think about the likes of of NASA uh, or other civil space agencies, they like to share information. So they never really thought, okay, well, why would someone want to take down our scientific mission that's for the good of mankind or humankind? And that is where the gap has shown up because these agencies, which have been so public and also spend a good majority of the money that went into space, uh, they just thought that no one would actually attack them. So why should they bother with that? It's a huge cost. And that's kind of where, why we're stuck, where we are right now. So they thought it was all altruistic, that, oh, no, no, this is for the good of uh, humankind. Absolutely. That's exactly the way people have thought for decades. And even until maybe three or four years ago, I'd say that was still the, the predominant way of thinking about this. Really? Three or four years ago? Yep, absolutely. I remember when I was doing my doctorate work, uh, it was still very fringe topic that someone would actually want to hack into one of these systems. Wow. Okay. We've seen it as part of the Ukraine war. So we, we know this happened. Okay. So is that what has changed things then? Is that Dr. Falco, what has changed things is that we've seen the impact of manipulating with satellites during the Ukraine war. Uh, I believe so. I think that was a big, that was a big part of it. We also have in my lab, we've developed ransomware systems for these satellites and satellites, you know, cost a lot of money. So as more and more attacks like the one against Viasat in the Ukraine war at the dawn of the Ukraine war, um, and, People coming out with malware built for these systems showing, look, I can break this thing if, you, if I wanted to. That has really kind of turned the tide on, oh, shoot, we should wake up and do something about this. Wow, so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. 
Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. That's Dr. Gregory J. Falco, Assistant Professor at Cornell University in Aerospace and Systems Engineering, part of a team of, of researchers and scientists who are trying to raise awareness about needing better cybersecurity in satellites. And you'd think, wow, that's such a basic thing. But sometimes the most basic things get overlooked because they think, oh, no, no, we don't need that. We're good. We're good. Well, it turns out not so much. We do need to think about that. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot to break down with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. And yesterday you said you'd be surprised if Selena Robinson lasted the day. And I said some new Democrats were wishing she'd recognize that she'd become a distraction and resign. And here we are. She's gone. Here, Here's what I thought. I thought, you know, if you're in cabinet, you serve at the pleasure of the leader, right? Yep. And we've seemed to have lost the art, you know, in years past. And you know this better than I do, that if you were causing a problem for the leader, you stepped aside, you had a timeout, and maybe later on you came back to cabinet. That used to happen. It doesn't happen as much anymore. Well, it doesn't happen in part because a lot of governments are run now by the rule of no trophies. They don't award trophies to their critics. They don't acknowledge that anybody screwed up. Uh, they don't fire ministers. And I can, you know, one obvious example, Mitzi Dean was a terrible minister of children and family development. Everybody recognized yes. that. There were all kinds of calls for her resignation. And David Eby stonewalled them. He refused to fire her. And when he finally shuffled her, shuffled her this year, he just moved her to another ministry. So David Eby doesn't fire incompetence. He doesn't fire people who get into trouble. But it's pretty clear that he leaned on Selena Robinson to go here, even after he'd stood behind her last week. So what happened? Yeah, what happened? Well, I could point to a few things. First of all, the NDP had to cancel a major fundraiser during an election year. Now, they say, oh, well, that had nothing to do with it. Why would we do that? Second of all, they were in terrible trouble with the Muslim community and with the indigenous community. And those two communities had made it very clear the apology wasn't good enough, and they were leaning on the government. And it's an election year. So David Eby yesterday put on this performance, and I call it that, you know, and says, oh, I have nothing to do with that. Oh, no, no. You know what? You know what he said? <laughs> Somebody finally said, well, what was the thing that changed between Friday and Monday? He said, oh, well, he said, you know, I realized that there was so much work to be done on this. She had so many people she had to talk to at length. And of course, she's also the minister for post-secondary education, and there's a lot of work to be done there, and she couldn't do both. And then he said the math doesn't work. So it was a math problem. I mean, Simi, that's like his the other part of his performance. He went on about how much he admires Selena Robinson and how brave she is and what a great political leader she is. And I thought, you know, man, if that's what you think, that's what you do to somebody you admire, I'd hate to see what he would do to somebody he actively publicly disliked. So yeah, well, it's the premier's judgment that's at play here, I would say, not Selena Robinson's anymore. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about then the timeline of yesterday, like yesterday morning, as you and I were talking, you know, we got there was another statement that came out. There was another apology. It was much more fulsome than the one that came out on Friday. And I think I said to you, geez, it's too bad this one didn't come first. Yeah, at 7.30 in the morning, uh, NDP caucus put out a statement from Selena Robinson. So this is the communications arm of the government caucus. 
And you're right. It was what she should have said last week. It was a detailed apology. She acknowledged precisely the wrong she had done to Palestinian community, the Muslim community, the indigenous community. She addressed all of that. She said she would take a course in Islamophobia uh, to understand it better. Like it was a genuine statement of contrition. And I, you said, as I, my reaction was too, hey, if she'd done that last week, she might have yeah. been able to save herself. I'm not sure she could have, but it certainly was uh, very well-intentioned and what needed to be said. The other thing to note is that came out of the government caucus. Now, the government caucus does not put out statements on behalf of ministers without first running them by the premier's office. So the premier's office knew that was coming at 7.30 in the morning. The next thing that happens is we've got an 11.30 press conference on housing. And this is a major political announcement about rental housing. And the government has come out and they're buying some rental properties and they're going to turn them over to nonprofits to create affordable rental. Major announcement. Premier's going to be there. They realize that all the media questions are going to be about Selena Robinson. Yes. So they cancel that. And then they say, the premier will have a press conference at the cabinet offices in Vancouver at 1.30. And the premier comes out and describes this very difficult decision uh, and claims it's joint. He and Selena Robinson have agreed that she has to go. This is party unity time, right? But there's something very obvious, Simi. Selena Robinson isn't there. You know, if two people have decided to jointly make a statement about something, they're usually both there uh, to yeah. say that. She's not there. Where is she? Well, Premier says she decided to spend some private time, you know. Oh, but she's on side with this. So the Premier's still in the middle of his news conference, Simi, when we get a statement from Selena Robinson. Now, this is somebody who has been a dutiful New Democrat for a long time, and she knows what is expected of a good, good soldier on a day like this. So she says, oh, yes, it was a joint statement, um, and I'm still going to do all the work I have. But she breaks with Eby on one point. The premier has the temerity to tell the media that, oh, he'd welcome Selena Robinson as an NDP candidate this fall. He thinks the world of her, right? She says, I'm not running again. And I made that decision a while ago. And I'm sorry, Simi, but hmm. I'd be astonished if David Eby didn't know that, that she has right. no intention of running again. She's leaving. Okay. And she's uh, going to do her fix-up work, but she's leaving. I, I want to talk. Her I want to. Career is over. Vaughn, as you point out here, there is a bit of a history between the premier and Selena Robinson. Yeah, they are not allies in the government. So when John Hargrove was premier, Selena Robinson was finance minister. David Eby was housing minister, and he was on treasury board, which is the committee of cabinet that makes the budget. And they clashed. Robinson and Eby. And Horgan finally removed Robinson, uh, sorry, Eby from the committee. And he was clear that he had to do it because other, otherwise he'd had to replace his finance minister. And he wasn't going to do that. So then Horgan steps down and Eby is clearly going to run. And Robinson toys briefly with running, but I think took soundings in the party and realized that wasn't there. But she stayed neutral in the leadership race. Uh, she was finance minister. She didn't want to get involved. She was working on the budget. 
Eby becomes premier, and the first thing he does is he removes Selena Robinson as finance minister. He gives her post-secondary education, which is a demotion in government, both in terms of power and influence and prestige and clout and everything else. So uh, they have a history of disagreeing around these things, and that was uh, sort of standing there in the background yesterday when David Eby was singing her praises. But he did say something a couple of things that are important about Robinson. One was she's been very out front on social media defending the LBGTQ community, very bravely, I would say, because you take a lot of heat on that file. And, of course, she was very important in critical in rallying support for the Jewish community in British Columbia in the wake of the Hamas attacks in the Middle East. And that community has been, was badly hurt. There was a wave of anti-Semitism. There was some very ugly stuff being sent by protesters in the streets, at our universities and colleges, and a fair level of tolerance for what a lot of people took as hate speech. So she was important in that and critical in that. And I mean, that's why uh, her to some degree self-inflicted ruin of her career as a politician is just sad and unfortunate because, you know, and Evie was asked this yesterday, it leaves the Jewish community feeling alone and isolated. And so, I mean, we saw that right away in statements from the Jewish community uh, that, you know, they were very, very sad. They've lost an advocate in government. They're sorry about that. But we did have one statement, Simi, that accused the premier of a double standard. And I think... Yeah. Uh, the detail on that is important. So two weekends ago, David Eby's office made a major embarrassing mistake regarding International Holocaust Day. They put out two postings on social media on International Holocaust Day, which attached a statement of regret about the attacks on the mosque in Quebec City. So it was a, a gaffe. And it was twice, Twitter and Instagram. The premier's office spotted the mistake. They took it down. The premier apologized. But there were suspicions out there, Simi, because these are suspicious times that, oh, somebody was making a statement on the right. premier's staff. Premier said, no, it was a staff error. We refused to discuss whether or not anybody had been demoted or fired the Jewish community leaders yesterday, one of them pointed out, the Jewish community provided David Eby with cover on that. They accepted the apology. They said anybody can make a mistake. And they believed the premier's explanation for what happened. And they're saying, you know, Selena Robinson makes a mistake. And look what happens. She's gone from cabinet. Gone from cabinet. Again, still an NDP MLA, still sitting in yep. caucus. None of that has changed. Yeah, and not running again. She's already said that, and she said she'd passed the word on that before. She's been in the legislature since 2013. Uh, mixed record as a cabinet minister. Uh, I don't think she was a particularly good housing minister. I think the premier and Ravi Kailan were both better at that. I don't think she was a particularly great finance minister. But I do think that what the premier said yesterday about it, however sincerely he holds those beliefs, that she was very brave, uh, particularly on... a issue in these divided times that it is difficult to be brave about 
which is standing up for Israel, standing up against anti-Semitism, standing up for the Jewish community. Uh, she took abuse that some of us yeah. can't even imagine. And so for that, it's a huge loss. And I, and I know, you know, a lot of people have said what she said, she never should have said. It was reckless. It was wrong. It was ignorant. So to some degree, she's the author of her own misfortune. And Simi, deep down inside, I expect she knows that better than we do. I have the same reaction that you do when you just did the big sigh when you talk about that, because I have that reaction too, because I thought, oh, it's just... So the comments were so unnecessary to the points that she's been trying to make. I've seen her fighting that fight, and there were a lot of admirable things about that, but just the... oh, I have that same reaction. One, one other political observation. Look how quickly this thing blew up, right? Yeah. You know, we look, we look every day at the opinion polls and they all say the same thing. But what we saw here is, you know, the election isn't over until it's over. And the political challenges just keep coming to governments this day. And 48 hours can change an awful lot. So, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll tell you that I can read the opinion polls and re-election of the NDP is the way to bet. But I've also covered elections that turned around dramatically. And let's follow the story because it will unfold in ways that you and I can't even imagine. Although yesterday, Simi, you imagined what was going to happen yesterday, which was Selena Robinson will be gone by the end of the day. I think it was the fundraiser, just that the noise got yeah. so loud. You know, I didn't see the path. I don't see that. I didn't see the path out. Yeah. You know, that, that I agree with you on that. Yes, there was a mob. Yes, there were yeah. protesters. Yes, there was a petition. Those people are out there all the time, and they, this isn't going to make any difference to them. They'll be back, right? The party had to cancel a major fundraiser in Surrey, which is yeah. going to be one of the key political exactly. battlegrounds this year. And that, I think, is what David Eby went, whoa, we got a bigger problem here than I've recognized. Exactly. Well, Vaughn, thank you so much for talking yeah. to us about it this morning. Bye-bye, Sam. Appreciate that. That's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. When you think about undocumented workers and undocumented children in particular, do you think about the situation in Canada? Or do you automatically think, oh, well, I mean, that's a problem that they deal with in the United States. Thing is, it's also a situation that we deal with right here. In fact, there are estimated to be tens of thousands of undocumented children here in Canada, and there is no real pathway for them to become legal. So let's talk about this issue with the help of our next guest. Sarah Paul is the director of the Childhood Arrivals Program and Advocacy Program at Justice for Youth and Children. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. How big of a problem is this here in Canada? Yeah, some some of the issue is we don't know. There's estimates of how many people are living in Canada without status, and we know that some of those people are children. Um, but because there isn't a pathway for these young people to access specifically to regularise their status, it's it's hard to get a count. I think um, you know it's a, it's a really important issue for those young people. I don't think it's an enormous issue compared to the other issues when we think about immigration. How different is the situation for undocumented children in Canada versus, say, the United States? Because we hear a lot about this in the United States. Yeah, we do. We um, And I think lots of your listeners will be familiar with words like the DACA program or the DREAM program in right. the United States, which are specific provisions that allow young people who came to the States as kids to, to not be removed. 
um, while they are hopefully regularising their status permanently. Um, we, we don't have that system in Canada, um, and we don't even have a national dialogue about these kids, uh, which is a, really how you introduce this program. So, um, you know, obviously the states have got a much bigger population and they're talking about it, and they have specific provisions, um, which is the big difference for us here. So if children are brought here with adults uh, and are undocumented, what rights do they have? Yeah, good question. And to give you some context, uh, the young people that we see um, have usually been brought here with uh, parents or maybe been sent here. But the background and the experiences of how they got here and how they ended up being without status is really broad. Um, But in terms of commonalities, the group we're talking about, um, some commonalities are that they did come as kids. So they're members of our societies now. Um, they're already here. Uh, and it's because they came as children, you know, they didn't have any agency in the decision to come, usually. Um, and for most of our clients, they've had the majority of their lives here. So they've gone to school here. They see themselves and understand themselves as Canadian. Uh, and they also, as a group, face really significant barriers and marginalisation. Um, and, you know, as teenagers and young adults now, they're trying to fix the situation, right? They're trying to regularise their status because they see it, the barriers that they face. And all of the young people we work with need assistance navigating the complexities of immigration. Our system's complicated. Um, and some of the barriers we see them facing um, are really fundamental. Um, for example, accessing school, so grade and high school. Uh, I know the situation in Ontario best, and, and here our Education Act says all children should be able to go to school regardless of status. But we see time and time again families facing significant barriers registering their children in schools. We've had children being out of schools for one or two or three years. Um, we have families being asked to pay international fees when they are actually exempt by law. And being in school does lots of things, right? It lets people um, learn, obviously, but form connections and learn social skills and all those really important things we need um, to grow up to be community members. The other thing our clients face is um, that they're not usually uh, eligible for uh, provincial health care. So um, we've had clients who've never visited a doctor. And the lack of health care can really flow into other choices that young people make. For example, young people who choose not to join the soccer team at school because they're fearful of getting injured and not being able to see a doctor. Um, In some of our school boards here, you have to put your health card number down if you want to go on a school field trip. Um, So students or young people saying, I just won't go on the field trip because I don't want to have to put my number down that doesn't exist and I don't want to have to explain why I don't have one. Uh, The issue about post-secondary education is obviously on people's minds in terms of inability to access university or college. Um, And a big one is the inability to work legally, you know, so young people being able to support themselves, um, to plan for their futures. And often our clients don't have any access to documents um, because of the circumstances that have led to them um, needing to regularise their status independently. And it can be really hard to get those documents from their country of origin. Right. Sarah, with everything that you've told us then there, it seems like it gets more and more challenging for these children as they get older (laughs) and they've had no choice in coming here. So what what path do they have then? Like what happens to them when they do kind of become legally adults Well, most of the clients we see are young people, so in their teenage years. Um, So, and for many of them, they're only realising what lack of status means or that they don't have status, you know, in the sort of last couple of years of high school for various reasons when they start thinking about post-secondary or life after school. 
Uh, and that hopefully when they seek out legal assistance um, to sort of figure out what are my options. Uh, and it's, you know, there are a couple of options, but they they aren't um, easy options at all. And well, it was really one. Um, in Canada, under our Immigration Act, we do have a, a, a pathway called a humanitarian and compassionate application for permanent residence, which is a discretionary application. Um, and it's the people who, can't, who don't fit into any of the other pathways. Um, and just to give some context, normally if somebody wants to apply for permanent residence, they're supposed to do that from outside Canada, get it all sorted and then arrive as a permanent resident. Um, but in this case, these young people have already built lives here and they're here. So they're asking for an exemption to be allowed to apply from inside based on humanitarian and compassionate um, grounds. And they're hard. These are comprehensive applications where you really are trying to help an immigration officer understand all of the circumstances of a young person's life and explain why it would be really hard for them to have right. to leave Canada. Um, they can also take months, if not years, to process. So um, during the pandemic, you know, up to 36 months to process. They're expensive. They have a lot of fees. And when you file your application, um, you're not protected from being removed or deported while it's being processed. So for lots of young people, the act of applying to regularise is really scary. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's exacerbate their already existing vulnerabilities. Um, Sarah, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. You're very welcome. Appreciate your time. That's Sarah Pohl, Director of the Childhood Arrivals Support and Advocacy Program at Justice for Youth and Children, talking about the problem that undocumented children face in Canada. It's not just a United States problem. We have the problem here too. This is Mornings with Simi. I want to extend on behalf of of the London Police Service, my sincerest apology to the victim, to her family, for the amount of time that it has taken to reach this point. That is the London, Ontario police chief apologizing yesterday for how long it has taken for this sexual assault case to get to the stage where charges have now been laid against five former Team Canada players. Part of the reason it took so long, Hockey Canada's reliance on non-disclosure agreements. Now, have you ever been asked to sign one of these? One of these NDAs, as they're known, they've become more and more popular to well, more or less try and keep things out of the public eye. Hockey Canada has admitted to using registration fees in a fund to pay off victims of sexual assault and try to silence them with these non-disclosure agreements. Should we even allow this to happen? And what are, what are your rights if you're kind of confronted with this situation? Well, Dr. Julie McFarlane is a professor at the University of Windsor and co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence. That's a global campaign to ban the misuse of NDAs and joins us now to talk more about this. Dr. McFarland, thank you for joining us. First off, how pervasive is the use of non-disclosure agreements? Well, it's extremely widespread. Uh, obviously, given that these are secret settlements, that raises a difficulty immediately if you're trying to figure out how many there are. But we and other researchers have now used some anonymous um, surveying, and the conclusion is one in three workers will sign an NDA at some point during their working life. That's a lot. Are, are they, can, uh, can you actually be silenced by this or are there certain circumstances under which they don't apply? Well, typically NDAs apply to um, speaking to anybody. So typically 
Someone who signs an NDA is being told they cannot speak to their family, their friends, their work colleagues or former work colleagues, even to a therapist for the rest of their lives. And the reason that they are so hugely all-embracing like this is that NDAs weren't designed to cover up misconduct, although they've become very, very pervasively used for that. They were designed to protect trade secrets during the tech boom in the 1970s where people didn't want new innovations that were still taking shape to be carried to other organizations. But now they're being used to cover up all forms of misconduct, treating them all as if they're some kind of trade secret. And so this can be, can they be run of the mill too, or people they just, you can't talk, we're going to pay you this amount of money and you can't talk? That, that's what the bargain is. Um, you know, now, interestingly, um, we increasingly suggest to people that they simply stand firm and say, if they don't want to sign, and say, I don't want to sign an NDA. Um, and then it becomes clear that it's really a bluff because the party that's trying to get the complainant to sign an NDA, like Hockey Canada, like an employer, like the church, are the party that want no publicity. That's why they're so keen on the NDA. And of course, if they go to court, it'll all be public anyway. So we find that people who, who dig their heels in and resist will still get their settlements without an NDA. Right, but they have to make that bluff. And for a lot of people, they, they might need that money. Exactly. It's not something that everybody can possibly do. And also, you know, people are understandably, you know, in the moment, incredibly anxious. We know that there is a great deal of pressure being put on people to sign, not only by lawyers on the other side, but often by their own lawyers saying, oh, this is just normal. Everybody does this. But I think that what isn't fully understood here is that these have a really traumatic impact on people. I mean, if you can imagine something bad happening to you and then you're not allowed to speak about it to anybody, um, that just, you know, re-traumatizes people. It also, as in the case of Hockey Canada, makes it very difficult to actually bring um, any of these, um, you know, issues to light and deal with them in a fair way because the NDAs that Hockey Canada has been dishing out have up until now very effectively buried complaints against them as well. I guess it doesn't seem right, Dr. Farland, that you could force someone or or get somebody to sign an NDA to cover up a potential crime. Like, how is that legal? Well, it's not. I mean, you know, you never lose the right, but this is, you know, why it's so important for me to talk to radio stations like yourself. It's so important that people understand that no NDA can stop them being a whistleblower and no NDA can stop them reporting a crime or a possible crime to police. But I think that the trouble is that most people don't realize that there are those distinctions and they just assume and become very concerned, obviously, about losing their compensation, become very concerned about any kind of breach. And, you know, just for just so that you realize this, even saying that you've signed an NDA is technically a breach of an NDA. So you can imagine how effective this threat is. Do you think that with all the attention this particular case is getting, the apology we heard from, you know, the London police chief, yes. do you think that will help towards educating people about what they can be silenced on and what they can't be silenced on? Well, that's what we really would hope, um, because there is, you know, a real, obviously, you know, regular people don't necessarily know all these finer distinctions. And I think that what happened yesterday at the press conference and what was clearly a genuine apology 
by Chief Chong, I think that there is a recognition, I saw a recognition there, that what happened here was wrong, and that was that the police effectively handed back this complaint to Hockey Canada. And this happens a lot with larger organizations. It's hard to prosecute sexual offenses. So the police say, oh, well, you know, if you're going to investigate, we'll just give it back to you. But when they do that, it becomes silenced in an internal investigation using an NDA. So there are many crimes that should be being um, fully investigated and charged, which just go back to the organization and get buried. And we certainly think that that is wrong. So, Dr. McFarlane, then what is your advice to someone who is being confronted with this choice of sign this NDA? Well, again, I would I would say remember that you have some power. The other side, the last thing they want is to see you in court, uh, even though they're going to be threatening you with, oh, you don't want to go to court, uh, really. Neither do they. So I would say if it's at all possible, dig in your heels. Um, we welcome people to contact us at can'tbuymysilence.com. There's a lot of information on our website. And we are just in the process of setting up a peer counseling program that we're hoping we can actually start to, to run um, out of a number of provincial agencies because people need to be able to talk to somebody about what to do. And I think definitely public knowledge is increasing um, And I think that that's going to be the key to getting legislative change and stopping people being faced with these. Dr. McFarlane, thanks for your time on this. You're welcome. That's Dr. Julia McFarlane, professor at the University of Windsor and co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence. It's a global campaign to ban the misuse of NDAs. This is Mornings with Simi. I really value my sleep. Okay, I have to. Scott Chance knows, you know, Scott, if I don't value my sleep, if I don't get my sleep, I'll make a mess of this thing in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think that um, I like I like working with you, Simi, because you get it right. Anyone who does this shift gets it. And as much as people who don't do this shift try to understand what we go through or people who work graveyard, for example, I don't think that unless you actually do it, you will ever really get it. I would also argue that it doesn't matter what shift you work, your sleep is incredibly important for you to feel good and function well the next day. Oh, yeah. We're absolutely learning that in a new way. I I heard a doctor actually say, somebody asked him in like an interview, what's more important, a healthy diet or a proper sleep schedule? And the doctor said like right away, the sleep thing is way more important, way more important. And we're just, we're sort of learning that. And people are, I hope, I think, starting to prioritize sleep. And as I talk to, you know, my peer group and, you know, because everyone is struggling with this, you hear all sorts of ideas and strategies that people are are talking about and trying to implement. And two of those that I wanted to talk about are the Scandinavian sleep method, which we'll get to, and also this idea of a sleep divorce, which sounds pretty serious, but it doesn't have to be. So I, I got in touch with a sleep expert. Her name is Amanda Jusen, and she has a sleep consultancy, and she is an expert in all things sleep. And I asked her, like, what is going on with everyone struggling and looking for new ways to get better sleep? People are becoming very choosy and and thoughtful about their sleep environment. Um, And this is forcing many couples who have wonderful, loving relationships uh, to consider things like a sleep divorce, which is 
you know, remaining married, but sleeping in separate beds. And so many folks are really, uh, in my clients anyway, they're really interested in the Scandinavian sleep method because it allows you and your partner to have two different sleeping environments within the same bed, allowing partners to continue to co-sleep in the same bed. So it brings the best of both worlds two different environments in the same bed. How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Um, the, the Scandinavian sleep method basically says you have two different duvets on the bed and each partner has their own duvet. So it really helps with things like temperature regulation or a lot of my clients will talk about how their partner moves a lot in their sleep. And so uh, if folks can sort of have their own duvet, they're not losing their blanket. It can allow for a way better sleep at night. So let's talk a little bit more because you're you're talking a bit about how important sleep is. And I think that so many people are, are really um, tuning into that. Um, there mm-hmm. are couples that are just choosing to do the full on separate bed, separate bedroom thing. How common totally. is is that? I think it is far more common uh, than we assume. I know a lot of people, even within my own friendship group, that sleep separately from their partners. They have great marriages, great friendships with their partners. But, you know, if you have a partner that is snoring um, or needs a CPAP machine or maybe moves a lot in their bed and it really is impacting uh, their their sleep. I mean, it's totally appropriate to seek out a different location in that way. I mean, in some ways, a sleep divorce can help save a marriage. Um, if you're having a great night of sleep, you're going to be emotionally regulated. You will be rested to connect with your partner. Um, there are a lot, you know, that mental health benefit of a good night of sleep might outweigh, you know, the I guess, tradition of sleeping with your partner. But we have to remember that's a fairly new thing. People slept separately from their partners for a long time as well. And things went okay. (laughs) Yeah. See, that's a really interesting thing that we adopt these ideas as kind of, as kind of standards. And, you know, like you mentioned Mm -hmm. the term sleep divorce, and I just think like, oh, uh, that's so uncommon and so abnormal Mm -hmm. but really like the idea of sharing a bed with a person historically that's abnormal exactly and i think that we also have to understand that sleep really is a personal thing what we need our temperature uh, our bedtimes even i mean i have folks who work shift work or you just have you maybe you're married to a, a night owl and they go to bed really late and they continue to wake you up there's some really good practical reasons why people might need you know something like the scandinavian sleep method um, or a proper sleep divorce to maintain harmony in the home and it makes a lot of sense how important is it for people to get a good sleep? I think it's kind of one of these things, uh, at least I know in my life, that people, um, they kind of put it off. Oh, I'll be able to catch up yeah. on sleep later. I can sacrifice this week because next week I'll get more sleep. It seems like one of the yeah. first things to go. But I think we're finding out more and more and more that it really is like one of the first things that we should be um, we should be trying the hardest to to make it good. Like it, like it's just it, more important important than almost anything else. 
Uh, Well, it's so interesting. We know that biologically, sleep is effortless. It has to happen. Uh, We know that it is instrumental in repair function, Um, you know, resting, digesting. We need sleep as much as we need food and water. It is no longer an option to say, you know, sleep is for the weak or I'll sleep when I'm dead. Um, You might speed up your arrival uh, to the end, not sleeping. Um, but, you know, I, I do think people are cluing in to the importance of sleep. I think it is, uh, you know, I, I really think I'm really glad that we're moving away from this idea of doing less sleep or trying to find ways to avoid sleep. Um, you know, even the study of sleep is fairly new. Um, so we're learning more and more every day about why we should be bar- prioritizing rest. Um, emotional functions, body functions, it can add years to your life. And it's easy and enjoyable. <laughs> That's Amanda Jusen. She's a sleep expert and sleep consultant. And Simi, it can add years to your life. I'm into it. Sleep oh, divorce. Bring I it on. believe it wholeheartedly. I mean, and that's doing the morning shift. And I've, d- I've done a morning shift on and off for almost 20 years now. Right. Uh, so mostly during that time, I have done a morning shift. And sleep is the single greatest ingredient to being able to show up at work every morning. And yeah, having somebody else there and you're like, oh, they're going to come to bed and then right. they're, oh, they're, they sleep hot, you sleep cold. Like it's just value your sleep and it's not a judgment on the relationship if you sleep somewhere else. No. And the one of the things that I really liked was that she talked about how this is all very modern society, you know, well, it's not. Like, this is like, like very old school. No, no. But like old school. But like if you go back the last 200 years, we've been oh, sharing okay, yes. beds. But if you go back through human history, we didn't sleep in the same like we just slept on the floor of caves, you know, and and this idea that you have to like share a little bed pod with someone is antiquated and it's bad for us and we don't need to do it. The idea that it's a comment on the state of your relationship, I think, is antiquated. That too. Listen, didn't you grow up Watching I Love Lucy reruns. I grew up watching I Love Lucy. How old do you think I am? I said reruns, Scott. I said reruns. Okay, I was not around in the fifties okay. either when okay. it was on, but okay. I grew up watching reruns, and um, they they had separate beds. That was like a big deal. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Lucy and Desi fair had enough. separate beds. They they knew the secret. Clearly, I think that was also just a TV thing. They weren't allowed to show like the marital <laughs> bed, but it worked. If it worked for Lucy and Desi for a while, anyway. I'm doing it. I'm going for it. Try it. We'll see how it goes. Scott, thank you for that. You got it. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, if there's one thing we can all agree on, regardless of political stripe, it's that we hate, absolutely hate governments or politicians wasting our taxpayer dollars. It feels like such disrespect, doesn't it? Well, wait for it, because here comes another story. It involves hundreds of thousands of dollars to host a conference right here in Vancouver, where not everyone showed up and used their very expensive hotel rooms. Joining us now to talk about it is NDP House Leader Peter Julian. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Good to be with you. $600,000. Just uh, a crying shame. It boggles the mind. Okay, can you explain to us what happened here? Well, this policy that's been in place that we, we in the NDP vehemently oppose, the idea that when there's an international conference uh, and the delegates don't show that it's the government that assumes 
the liability for those uh, unbooked rooms. Now, it, it shouldn't be uh, hotels that are impacted by that. If an international organization wants to come to Canada, then they should uh, guarantee those those rooms. It shouldn't be up to Canadian taxpayers to pay for it. Okay, and also, what about the type of rooms that we're booking here? Uh, these were high-end rooms that were booked by by the uh, by by the conference organizers in Canada, and the organization itself assumed no liability for it. Uh, understandably, uh, delegates didn't want to go to those high-priced rooms, so a lot of them moved uh, into other areas of the Lower Mainland and had rooms that were uh, less less costly. Uh, and it ended up being Canadian taxpayers on the hook. Now, this this is a policy that was in place when the Conservatives were in government, in place with the Liberals in government, and it's a policy that should simply be ended. If if international organizations want to come here uh, and they want to have a certain number of rooms uh, reserved for their delegates, uh, that's fine, but they assume the costs if those delegates don't show up. It shouldn't be Canadians assuming those costs. Okay, so this conference was hosted by us. This happened last summer. Uh, 700 people were supposed to show up. It was expected that 700 would show up, and only 360 attended. Now, you know, if, if I cancel a reservation, yeah, it depends on what type of room I book, but I'm generally quite liable for that. So we were on the hook for a bunch of hotel, expensive hotel rooms where delegates didn't show up. Basically, the, the, the conference wanted to have high-end luxury rooms reserved. Uh, the conference organizers in Canada did that. Uh, the delegates did not show. And when they did show, often they took less high-priced tickets, uh, uh, hotel rooms, out, out uh, in other areas of the Lower Mainland, which makes sense with the SkyTrain. It's accessible. Uh, certainly makes sense for those delegations that are coming in from abroad. They're saving money. But the fact that the Canadian government picked up the cost, Canadian taxpayers picked up the cost, they strongly object to. And this, this is something that's been going on uh, for a long time, for years. It's a policy that needs to be changed. If we're, if we're putting forward, if we're rolling out the, the red carpet for international um, delegations, for international conferences, and certainly Canada is a, is a place that many countries look to to host these these events, I, I think that's, that's fine. I think Canada benefits from that. But Canadian taxpayers shouldn't be uh, obliged to pick up the tab when the international organization does not get the number of delegates that they were projecting. They should be picking up the tab. They, they are the ones that enforce a, a certain minimum number of rooms. And when they reserve them and the delegates don't show, it's the international organizations that should be picking up that tab. Well, absolutely. Also, this seems like poor planning on our part. Uh, like, what are who does the planning for this, and what are the consequences of, of the poor planning here? Uh, well, it's the House of Commons administration. The, the conference, uh, it's it's part of the House of Commons administration that actually does uh, the the organizing of that. The international organization insists on a certain number of rooms. And, and that that's really the problem. Uh, I think on the conference side in Canada, uh, they did the, the work. That was the Commons administration did all the work required. The international organization then is supposed to ensure that everybody shows up. And they're supposed to ensure that their requirement for rooms is actually met, that they are actually pushing right. the delegations to use them. And they didn't. So the international organization in this case, uh, just uh, lamentably failed 
at the at the organization required for the conference, but ultimately because of the organization. Uh, requirement that Canada should not be agreeing to, Canadian taxpayers are picking up the tab for their bad organization. This should never happen again. It should be the international organization picking up that tab from here on in. Right. Is there also um, any kind of policy about room standards? Like, do we have to book the nicest room? Like, should we not have a, okay, well, this is what our, this is the amount of room that we are willing to pay for. Uh, that I, I think that that is a, a very good suggestion. Obviously, the delegations went to other places. Uh, they went to sure. Burnaby. They went to Richmond. They went to the North Shore. They went to other places in the Lower Mainland, which made sense. The, the hotel rooms are more accessible and they're they're more reasonable in, in cost. But the the reality is. If the international organization is insisting on these high-end rooms, they should be paying the tab if those delegates don't show up to book and stay Absolutely. in those high-end rooms. Uh, yeah. So how and do we change this? this happen in this place. Pardon me? How do we change this? Uh, we, we have to have uh, the uh, agreement to ensure that when we host these international events, it's the international organization that picks up the tab, if the numbers uh, aren't what the international organization is calling for. Canada had the responsibility of booking the rooms and is now picking up the tab for failures that the international organization uh, clearly went through. And, and this is unacceptable. It shouldn't be when Canadians are struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling to put food on the table and, and keep a roof over their head. Uh, Canadians shouldn't be picking up the tab for luxury hotel rooms that oh, weren't even used. Absolutely. Okay, so then is this something that the House of Commons administration has to change? Like, how, how do we get this changed, though, so the policy is different? I, I've, I've raised this and said, on behalf of the NDP, I've said that we, we need to ensure now, moving forward, that this doesn't happen. We've raised this before, and we've had, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, both under the Conservatives and Liberals, there hasn't been a willingness to change. That has to end, and I think this has been the most egregious example. So hopefully what this will mean is that the other parties will accept the idea uh, that we don't accept these conferences if the conference, uh, your conference organizer uh, abroad, the international organization, is not willing to pick up the tab uh, when things fall through. And things very clearly fell through in this case. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. Thank you for raising this. Press Peter Julian, NDP House leader, uh, talking about uh, the... Planning procedures, like you think, you know, you and I plan stuff and you probably plan trips, I plan trips. Uh, You know what you're on the hook for if things fall through. Uh, Apparently, Canadian taxpayers are on the hook for $600,000 for this conference that happened last summer. They were expecting 700 delegates. Only 365 showed up. We had booked some very expensive hotel rooms in downtown Vancouver for these delegates. And they just, you know, didn't show. So obviously we had to pay because we had booked and spoken for those rooms. And it's a good point to say if these delegations want those rooms, they should at least provide a deposit that is non-refundable if they don't show up, right? Why are Canadian taxpayers having to pay for that? Find a way in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we're going to talk about the Winters Hotel fire. It was a tragic situation. Two people were killed almost two years ago. Five people hospitalized. Almost 150 were displaced. Well, how and why did it happen? That has been the subject of a coroner's inquest jury that has been digging into this. The unanimous verdict after about two weeks of testimony is that the deaths were accidental. 
But there were also a lot of recommendations to prevent something like this from happening in the future. So helping us to break it all down now is Jen St. Denis, Vancouver journalist covering city issues and housing for the Taiyi.ca. Hi, Jen. Thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. What did we learn about how the, ho- the Winters Hotel fire happened? Yeah, what we learned was, um, as you said, just incredibly tragic because we learned it was such a preventable fire. Um, So what had happened, and I think a lot of people know this already, but there had been a previous fire on April 8th, 2022, a Friday. Um, And then the sprinklers, and we thought the alarm was off, but in the inquest we actually got evidence that it um, was working. Um, But the sprinklers were certainly left off all weekend, and the extinguishers that had been used to fight the April 8th fire were also empty. Um, And what we learned in the inquest was that the normal practice was to call a fire services company to come right away to reset everything and replace the extinguishers. But that wasn't done that day. Uh, There was this delay and they uh, the building manager waited until the Monday to call. And by then it was too late. Oh, wow. Okay, And this had happened before. They they didn't have a, a fire plan in place either, did they? Yeah, we heard really disturbing things about, you know, first of all, this was an old building and we heard from the fire department that it was actually very vulnerable to fire, like even more more so than other SRO buildings that are all about 100 years old. The Winters had all this open space because it had this unusual kind of like open mezzanine design. It had a, an unused elevator shaft that also kind of created all this space and there wasn't really proper fire separation. So it was already very vulnerable to fire. But then on top of that, you know, the staff of the, the nonprofit housing provider that was operating it, Atira, um, they all testified that they really re- received, you know, very little, actually really zero fire safety training for this building. Um, so that was a really alarming combination of factors. And so did we hear from residents at all about, did they know anything about a fire plan? Like, how did they feel about the safety in this building? Yeah, we heard from three residents, and it was all very, very powerful testimony. Um, they actually, one, you know, one of them, Jennifer Hansman, testified that she actually felt safe in the building before the fire. She didn't, she didn't really think about about fire safety. But I have heard from other tenants that they would keep their own fire extinguishers in their rooms, actually, and some of them tried to use those. So clearly, some tenants were thinking about it, but no, they hadn't really received any fire safety training themselves. A fire drill was never conducted in the building, um, and so that was that was absolutely never done. So, and there was even confusion about you know, new tenants weren't even trained on the muster point, the place where they were supposed to go if an if an emergency happened. So there was a real lack of training throughout, you know, both staff and tenants. Right. What did we learn about like the Atira property manager uh, about you know their plans for this building and, and what happened? So yeah, so Atira had this uh, building manager Gina Vandenberg, who was who was responsible for the building. And you know, I I felt very sorry for Gina, even though she was the one who had the delay. She decided not to call the fire safety company. She she testified about just being very overwhelmed on April eighth. You know, it's a Friday evening. She had to do all of these tasks, rehouse tenants. She did call in a. Uh, property restoration company right away and they came immediately but for whatever reason she just did not uh, call the fire services company oh wow okay now how long had Atira been managing that they had they had taken it on in 2017 they it was it's actually a privately owned building this man named Peter Platt owns it 
And apparently what, what Atira did was when the Balmoral was being shut down by the city because it was in such bad condition, um, Atira's CEO, uh, then CEO Janice Abbott, went to Peter Platt and made this lease deal and then brought it to BC Housing and said, hey, I have this building and you can rehouse people from the Balmoral to the Winters. Right. But obviously there have been some complications. So I know that the inquest also had some recommendations, Jen. Like, what did they say? Yeah, I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised at the scope of the recommendations. Um, they spent a lot of, I think they spent, we were, we were sort of waiting all day. So they had a lot of time to work on this. And it went from like, you know, basic improved fire safety, have a, you know, have maybe have an inventory of fire extinguishers, have tamper-proof fire doors and alarms, or smoke, smoke detectors so people can't take them out, that kind of thing. Um, but then it went up to, you know, talking about maybe have, when you're signing these operating agreements, when BC Housing signing oper- operating agreements with these housing operators, you know, have a requirement that they have to hire a third-party um, contractor, extra staff, to do a fire watch if that building has to be on fire watch. Um, and it went all the way up to, uh, you know, create an ombudsman to handle complaints from tenants because, you know, we've heard and I've heard a lot doing this work um, that BC Housing's complaint process is really not trusted by tenants. Um, so I thought that was actually one of the most significant recommendations. Interesting. Now, what was I know that there had been some uh, rumors about chains on some of the fire doors. What did we hear about mm-hmm. that? Yeah, so that appears to have been confirmed. There were chains on on the fire doors. We heard that from tenants, and we heard that confirmed by Atira staff. Um, that in the months, not not on the day the fire happened, but in the months previous, um, tenants and and some staff had seen chains on doors, and that seems to have been because um, the fire escape doors were being used by other people to break into the building and do bad things. So obviously, there was a problem with that. They. The, we and then we, we did have like video evidence showing that there wasn't chains, there weren't chains on the door on the day of the fire, and there was sort of conflicting evidence about whether those chains had actually even prevented the doors from being opened from the inside. But you know, certainly in tenants' minds, they testified that they thought that the fire doors wouldn't work because they had seen those previously. Oh man, really? Okay, so one of the other recommendations, I guess, had to do with whether or not they should even have what private buildings that are kind of run by BC Housing. Is that right? Yeah, this is when I talk about, you know, the scope of of the recommendations really went on and on. And and so we'll see how many of these recommendations are actually followed through on. But yeah, you know, even some, they even made a comment, you know, should we be phasing out SROs and building purpose-built housing, which is what the government has actually been talking about. Both the the city government and the province have been talking about that. Yeah, this idea that maybe we shouldn't, maybe BC Housing shouldn't be involved in funding buildings that are privately owned. Um, you know, even going up to uh, create a combined task force to identify land that can be used for housing. So this inquest jury really did kind of take this really broad view. They, they seem to understand that there was a whole like, you know, housing system, housing crisis element to to this tragic fire. Right. Now, you've been covering this story for a long time, Jen. Was this, do, were you, you were surprised even by the depth of this? Do you think this will make a difference? Yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised by the depth of this. They seemed, the jury seemed to be, you know, throughout the inquest, I was really impressed with this jury. They seemed very, very uh, serious about this. They asked lots of really good questions, lots of probing questions. They, there was several times when I thought they seemed quite disturbed by what they were hearing. And then, yeah, they seemed to really understand what had happened in this building, that it wasn't, you know, often in these, in these instances when this type of thing happens, the tenants are kind of blamed, you know, they, there is a lot of chaotic behavior in these in these buildings, um, 
And so there's like, oh, well, tenants are always setting fires. But there did seem to be an understanding by the end of this that, you know, the two people who died, Marianne Garlow and Dennis Gay, were, um, you know, they were both older people. They were both vulnerable. Marianne was a residential school survivor who'd lived in SROs for almost her whole life. She was a caregiver to her son, John. Um, Dennis Gay was this man who'd actually worked in local government for 20 years and then had had a mental health crisis um, and had been really diligently trying to manage it. And he was also deaf. And he had just sort of, you know, ended up in this housing because it was affordable. It was what he could afford. And he was left totally unprotected. He didn't even have an evacuation plan or an adaptive alarm like flashing lights. Um, so that there was that element too. So yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised that that this jury took this this seriously. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that time. That's Jen Saint Denis, Vancouver journalist covering city issues and housing for the Tai, talking about the coroner's inquest jury looking into the Winters Hotel fire.